roll over on your bellies. Feel the warmth of my breath, you slithery quarantine lizards. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. What's the crack? I hope you've been having a fruitful week and a not-too-stressful time. If you're listening to this podcast, when it comes out, it means it's April 1st, 2020. Otherwise known as April Fool's Day. I think I think in 2020, April Fool's Day can go fuck itself. Because it just... It, it's just annoying. It's like, you know, like when newspapers do a fake story on April 1st. It's just, you can't do it anymore. Because the internet is too mad and fake news. And do you ever like come across an article and it's ridiculous and you sh- you're, it, it, like in June and you share it because it's in the Irish Times or it's in the Guardian and you believe it and then you don't notice that the the date is April Fool's and then you look like a dickhead like I remember sharing an article it was like an Irish Times article whereby the government was uh, suggesting that they they reintroduce wolves to the wild in Ireland and I thought it was a great idea I was like yeah bring back wolves but then it's like the article was an April Fool's joke from like 2016 delete the fucking article then because I'm reading it in December buddy I'm reading it in December expecting some fucking wolves and I just end up looking like an idiot so maybe yeah if 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 the newspapers are running April Fool's jokes, maybe just do it today and then delete the fucking article for the poor people who are going to be reading it in November or whenever. Um, April Fool's... Actually, before before I, I, I tell you why April Fool's is important to me, um, oh yeah, I want to give you... I want to give you a little recipe for a drink... And the thing is, with this recipe, I was thinking, fuck it, I can't, I can't wait to tell you about this quarantine drink recipe. But then I thought, the recipe is so odd that you're going to think it's an April Fool's recipe and that I'm talking out of my hole. So I have to assure you, this is not an April Fool's recipe. It's actually a, a real thing. So if you're in, in quarantine at the moment, like I am, because of the coronavirus, um. You're, I'm guessing you're eating a lot of canned food because you're trying to minimise the amount of time that you're going to the shop so you're buying a lot of canned goods so that's what I'm doing I'm guessing that many of you are acquainting yourselves with chickpeas chickpeas are fantastic they come in a can very tasty full of protein anything that's canned you can keep for fucking ages so I'm assuming a lot of ye are eating chickpeas and if you're not, you should be. Tasty, great source of protein. Fuck it into a stew, fuck it into a curry, whatever you want to do. There's a chickpea stew recipe, actually, that's gone viral at the moment because of quarantine. I think it's... I think the New York Times started it, but it's delicious. It's... It's like a can of chickpeas and a can of coconut milk. And then ginger and onions. Look it up. Chickpea stew. Delicious. But anyway, 
if you are eating chickpeas out of a tin, do not throw away the chickpea juice. Alright? Hold on to the juice from the tin of chickpeas. Because this juice is known as aquafaba. And it's actually got multiple uses. It's fucking fantastic. Vegans use chickpea juice as a substitute for egg whites. So if you're even baking a cake and you're stuck for eggs, you can get chickpea juice and you can whip it and it forms a foam. You can make, you can add sugar to it, you can whip it up, you can make a fucking meringue. What else can you do with chickpea juice? If you're making granola in the oven, you mix chickpea juice in with it and I think it sticks it together. You can make chocolate mousse using chocolate and chickpea juice. Look it up, aquafaba, the many wonderful things you can do with chickpea juice. So don't be throwing away that fucking chickpea juice out of the tin. It's very valuable. So anyway, here's a little drink recipe. And I tell you why it's so class, because it uses ingredients that you probably already have because of quarantine. So it's a twist on a whiskey sour. Except it doesn't use egg white. It uses chickpea juice. So first. You need a cocktail shaker. Not everyone has a cocktail shaker. Right. If you don't have a cocktail shaker. Use any container with a fucking lid on it. Use. You know. Your your, your bottle that you have for going to the gym. A, a jam jar. An empty clean jam jar is perfect. So get your jam jar. Put a few ice cubes into the jam jar. And then. I want you to get a lemon. I know a lot of you have lemons. Because. If you're kind of paranoid about getting a flu. You're going to have some lemons. So get a lemon. Cut it in half. Into your jam jar. Squeeze in. The juice of half a lemon. Then on top of this. Put in two tablespoons. Of the juice from your can of chickpeas. Then get whiskey. Any whiskey. Technically it should be bourbon. But it can be any whiskey. I've been using Jameson. Put in either a shot or two shots of Jameson. Onto your lemon juice and tablespoon of chickpea juice. Again, two tablespoons of chickpea juice. Whatever works for you. Then the last thing you need to put in is something sweet. I put in a tablespoon of sugar. You could put in maple syrup. You could put in honey. Whatever works. You're just trying to sweeten up the lemon. Put the top on to the jam jar. Shake it. Like mad for about 20 seconds. Pour it into a glass with some ice cubes in it. And what you'll get is... The, the, what the chickpea juice does is it, it takes the place of the egg white. So it kind of emulsifies the whiskey and the lemon juice. And you get this gorgeous foamy drink that's cold because you've shaken it nice. And it's incredibly... It's delicious and refreshing. And it can be as sour as you like or as sweet as you like, depending on how you add the sugar to it. And, yeah, egg whites are used in cocktails a lot. And I I don't like it. Well, I do. I like, I like egg white cocktails because they're very smooth and they have a head on them and they're foamy. So the texture of them is incredible. But egg whites, raw egg whites, sometimes in a drink... 
they have a kind of a, a sulfur type of smell and I'm not crazy about that but when you use chickpea juice instead of fucking egg whites I'm telling you lads it's perfect and it's it's actually nicer because you get this lovely there's a kind of a protein flavour to it to the chickpea juice so there you go and that's not an April Fool's that's why I had to say it no one's going to fucking believe me that I'm putting the juice of, of a tin of chickpeas into a, into an alcoholic drink there you go so this week I've got a most wonderful distraction for all of ye I have an incredibly engaging interesting podcast that I'm I'm just really happy to deliver it this week for two reasons number one April 1st to me, I don't really think of it as April Fool's Day. For me, April 1st is the day when the writer Flann O'Brien died. Flann O'Brien is my favourite writer, an Irish writer, um, who wrote very surreal, comedic books that mixed philosophy and science and... Flan is just amazing. Look, if if you're looking for a book to read, pick up The Third Policeman by Flan O'Brien or At Swim Two Birds. But Flan O'Brien's book, The Third Policeman, which is probably my favourite book of all time. It is, it is. Um, The Third Policeman, which was written in the 30s, it explores Einstein's atomic theory. Uh, Einstein's atomic theory is a, is a central part of the book, but Flann O'Brien explores it in this Irish vernacular way, which takes you know something as cutting edge and as groundbreaking and highfalutin and as advanced as Einstein's atomic theory in the nineteen thirties. He manages to describe it in the book using the simple language of the Irish peasant. Do you know? And he uses atomic theory in the book. He basically... at the I don't think... I don't need to give a spoiler alert, but a huge tenet of the book, The Third Policeman, it's about people who gradually turn into bicycles. And the people in the book turn into bicycles because the atoms in the bicycle start to mix with the atoms of the person and then their personalities get mixed up. So you have bicycles that have human personalities, and then humans with the personality of a bicycle. And this is a huge tenet of this book that he wrote. So, in honour of Flann O'Brien, and how he beautifully used the atomic theory for hilarious creativity in The Third Policeman, this week I'm going to be speaking to a doctor of quantum physics. Um, a fella called Dr. Michael Brooks, who is did his PhD in quantum physics. He's an expert in quantum physics. A really complicated and difficult subject, but Michael Brooks is one of these people who is not only an expert in an area, they're also passionate about the area to the point that they're creative and how they speak about it and Michael Brooks is he's gifted with the ability to 
communicate very complex ideas in simple terms. So it was a hugely enjoyable uh, interview to fucking do. And I'm looking forward to showing it to you. So before I continue, and before we go into the chat with Michael Brooks about quantum physics, um, first we'll have our... What time are we there? 12 minutes in. We'll have our little ocarina pause to get any adverts out of the way. Hold on a minute. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in, hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What's going on here? That was a, a lackluster ocarina pause right there. I don't know what went wrong. I couldn't get any purchase on the uh, ocarina with my fingers. So, before we get into it, just I'm going to give a plug to my Patreon. If you've been listening the past few weeks, you are aware that I had to postpone some gigs as a result of coronavirus. One of these gigs in particular, London, because I postponed it, it left me with quite a large debt uh, penalties for postponing it. So I've inherited a large debt and I don't have any live income for the next few months. So I'm really pleading with you. If you listen to the podcast and you've been listening to it for a while or whatever, now is really the time that I really need you to financially support the podcast patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if you can spare me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee once a month please fucking do um it's now my sole source of income and you truly be helping me deeply if you do it and thank you to everyone who thank you to everyone who has done it the past few weeks thank you so much all right that's all i can say um if you can't afford it you don't have to the rule still applies but if you're someone who can please do what else have I got to say? Yes. So, as you know, a few of my gigs got postponed. I now have dates for when these gigs will we'll, we'll actually be able to go and do them. All right? So, we'll say Vicar Street. I had three Vicar Street gigs. They were sold out. Couldn't do them. They've been rescheduled. So, the new dates for Vicar Street are 21st of August the 8th of October and the 15th of November. So, 
if you've bought tickets to, the, to these gigs that were supposed to be this month, they were supposed to be today, tomorrow, and the day after, I think. First, second, and third of April, they were supposed to be. But they've been rescheduled to August, October, and November. So, if you bought tickets to those gigs, they're completely valid. Hold on to them. If you can't make those dates, fair enough. You're entitled to a refund. Everyone's entitled to a refund. But I'm asking you, please hold on to the tickets and come along to the new dates. Your tickets are valid for them, right? Um, this coronavirus bullshit is going to be over. We're going to come out the other side of it. I think we'll all have a, a new fucking appreciation of things we used to take for granted. And let's fucking celebrate. Once it's done, let's celebrate. So come along to the fucking gigs and we'll have crack, all right? Belfast, that's been po- uh, rescheduled to the 12th of September in Ulster Hall. And London has been rescheduled to the 24th of October. Those are the dates I have at the moment for, for gigs that have been postponed. Ever- postponed. Every other gig, lads, that was supposed to be on, I haven't cancelled any gig. They're all going to be postponed. If you bought a ticket, everyone's going to get an email with the new date. I'm just giving you a heads up on the podcast. I don't have a rescheduled date for Cork yet. And a few other ones, Drahada and things like that. But don't worry, you will be contacted. And you're entitled to a refund. But I'm asking you, come along to the gig and hold on to your ticket if you can. Alright. Dog bless. Without further ado. Um... Yeah, this is a chat I had with Dr. Michael Brooks. We talk about everything. We talk about quantum physics. We talk about Einsteinian physics. We talk about quantum computing. This is... I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Michael is so interesting. It was a pleasure to to, to do. And... I hope you enjoyed this bit of escapism. Right? This is going to take your mind... Out of wherever the fuck you are right now into a lovely fantasy place of thinking. All right? Yart. Nice and cognizant because <laughs> I've got an expert in quantum physics. Uh, their name is Dr. Michael Brooks. Come on out, Michael. What is the crack, Michael? Uh, where do I begin? Um, that's ironically a nice, little, a nice little metaphor for quantum physics. Where do you begin? <laughs> um, so, you're, okay, so you're a PhD in quantum physics, but also you specialize in democratizing science, making the language of science accessible to everybody, because it's, it's not only a problem with science. I think it's a problem with general academia, even art, do you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which is a total scam, the fact that you should have to explain art. Sim- I can understand quantum physics needing to explain that simply to people, but sometimes people describe art in too many words and it doesn't need to happen. But <laughs> um, I'll ask the most basic question, right? What is quantum physics? All right, so, so quantum physics is the rules that govern stuff that's very small, usually. So atoms, electrons, you know, the, the little things that you learned about at school that sit inside the atom, uh, photons, which are particles of light, although we think they're waves as well, we don't really know what they are. 
Uh, we don't really know what anything is, to be honest. I mean, we don't even know what an atom actually is. So, I mean, all the stuff that you learn at school, like once you learn some, like, you know, quantum physics, basically, all, you realize your teachers were just making it up. Is it one thing I enjoy about quantum physics when I'm reading about it is that we have this understanding of the world as it works, like something like gravity. Look. Yeah. I, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, it's, <clears throat> we, is that Newtonian physics? Uh, well, um, yeah, that, that is see. kind of Newtonian there, in that nothing extraordinary is happening. Um, Newton's sort of description of gravity works to a certain degree, but it doesn't work on like huge scales across the universe and things like that. So you have to, that's why Einstein basically invented general relativity. Yeah, that's to, what I want to know about. Yeah. That, like, everyone knows that Einstein is, was pure smart, yeah. but no one really knows what the fuck did he do. Like, but it is one of them. You'd be having an argument with someone, and you go, who do you think you are, Einstein? No one knows of what the fuck he did. No one can really... Well, I well, don't, like... I, right. I knew it was general relativity, but, like, what does that mean? So he, he worked out... And the first thing he did, really, of note, was that he showed that um, quantum... That, that things come in lumps. So, so, like, energy comes in lumps and... and in uh, lumps? In lumps. So, so you can't... Like, you know when you roll a dice and you can get one or you can get two, but you can't get one and a half? Yes. Sort of, that's how quantum stuff works. So, so you can have one lump of energy or two lumps of energy, but you can't, it's not like infinitely indivisible. You can't have one and a half quanta. You know, a quantum is the, the What is a quanta? Thing. So it's just a lump of energy. So energy comes in lumps. That, that's, um, and we call them photons when it's light. And, and basically, we found this out by trying to work out how a light bulb works. Okay, so... so just start, sorry, what, what's a lump of energy? Well, um... The energy that's coming, say, from these spotlights, yeah. right, it's coming at you in lumps. It's coming, there's, there's a lump of energy that's a particular color of light that's coming at you, and then there's another lump that's a different color. And, and you can basically you know, have these fundamental particles. So of light. I'm, am I being, is that like a hose of lumps yes. of energy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's spraying me with lumps of energy. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, no, you don't have to feel any differently about it. It's just what it is, you know. Wow. So, so um, but, you know, would you be and happier if I said it was waves? Because I can say no, that. No, I well. like the idea of yeah, lumps. Like the, you like the hose. Um, okay. Because, I don't know, there's something very uh, humble about lumps. There's something, um, <laughs> there's a humility to a lump where a, a wave has got opinions about itself. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. A lump is just like, I'm a fucking lump. What do you want from me? <laughs> Like in Ireland, we call people lazy lumps. Yeah, okay. So that, that works quite well. And it was, Does the lump have a shape? That's the other thing. Waves Ooh, have a shape, but I a mean, lump... No, not that we know of. I mean, it, it, we literally don't, can't think of it as like having a physical space that it inhabits. You, you can't think of it as like, oh, it's this big. or It's, it's just because it's energy, so it doesn't work in the same way is as it normal so stuff. Is, it, is, it, is a lump of light made out of atoms? No. So a lump of light is made out of pure energy. And at the beginning of everything, at the Big Bang, everything was just energy. And some of that energy sort of condensed down, sort of coagulated, however you want to think about it, into stuff like matter, like particles. And then we got atoms, and then we got stars, and then we got planets, galaxies, people. So we're made of different stuff than the lumps of light. So <clears throat> this lump of energy that's hitting me with this light, 
What other lumps of energy do I encounter in my day that aren't light? Is there any other lumps of energy? Yeah, so um, uh, magnets, they basically work by these lumps of energy that are uh, exchanged between sort of bits of the magnet, if you like. And, and so, so, so a, a, a fridge magnet. Relation, yeah. So if two magnets... If you put the two magnets together and they're like, fuck that, get the fuck away from me, I'm not interested in you. Yeah. Are they like exchanging lumps of energy that yeah. don't agree with each they're other? It's like a, a lump argument. Exactly, they're exchanging photons between each other. And that's what the force is that acts between is, them. Is a photon the name for one of these lumps of energy? Yeah. So I'm getting battered with photons. Yeah. And magnets are, are exchanging photons yeah. too. But are the, is, a, is a magnet's photon the same photon as a light's photon? It's just a different uh, frequency or wavelength or color, if you like. So it's, it's not a color, but, you know, because we, we attribute color to a few bits of this whole electromagnetic spectrum. So some of it is, is just, you know, magnetism. And there's UV light and there's infrared, which is heat. So when you're hot, again, it's photons, lumps of energy. That's not... Is it, is it friction? Is, is, is that hose of lumps of energy hitting me so hard that it's creating friction and that's why I'm warm? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, okay, so. Now it doesn't happen anymore because they're LED lights. But right. if, if this was 15 years ago and we had old school incandescent lights, yeah. we'd be fucking really warm up here. Yeah, do you know why? No. <laughs> I, I could, because all of the energy that, that those lights give off, or most of the energy, is heat and infrared. Okay. And this was a huge problem. So when they first invented the light bulb at the end of the uh, 19th century, yeah. they were trying to fix this so that you got more light than heat because you were just getting so much. Yeah. All the electrical energy gets turned into heat. Very little light comes because out. Because an incandescent light is essentially a fire that doesn't go out, isn't it? Uh, it's a fire that doesn't really start, I guess. Really? It yeah, because it ha happens in a vacuum. With tungsten. Yeah, so you have your tungsten, and your tungsten gets heated to about 1,500 degrees. And what it's doing then is all the atoms in the tungsten are re-radiating the electrical energy as light and heat, but mostly heat. So they wanted to fix this and get more light, and that's how quantum theory started, basically with a, with a light bulb. Light bulb, really? Yeah, and, and to be honest, we still don't know how light bulbs actually work. Really? Yeah, because, because the, the, the theory that said, oh, here's how to fix... You know, light bulbs and make them better is quantum theory. That's how we. That's how we decided. Like we said, oh, it comes in lumps of energy and not like just like a continuous sort of you know set of of of, of uh, infinite sort of numbers of energies. So and that was the fix by a guy called Max Planck, who said he only did it as an act of desperation. Mm -hmm. So um, and he never understood why that worked, but it did work, and that solved the whole sort of you know why we have a. That's, that's how we basically got quantum theory instead of the, the previous theory, which is known as a classical theory. So, so just back to the light bulb, yeah. right? So, that's pretty bright. Yeah. And it's an LED. Yeah. And I, it's probably only using maybe a, a 60 watts, right? Yeah. But if it was 15 years ago, that would be incandescent. It'd be using maybe 1,000 watts, yeah. and we'd be very warm. Yeah but it'd still be the same amount of light. The people out here would be experiencing the same amount of light that we're getting on stage. So why is that LED light able to use less energy, yet I'm still as bright as I would be if it was a fucking a, a, a 1,000 watt incandescent? Precisely because of quantum theory. It's been designed using quantum theory, using the mass of quantum theory, to give out more light than heat. So turn all the electrical energy into light rather than heat. 
So quantum theory is applied in the making of light bulbs. It's applied in the making of all electronics. Yeah, phones, that's everything. by the way, Michael is selling light bulbs after the gig. <laughs> and, and, no, that's the thing. Again, and, and this is something I'm just after learning, learning now. Right. Is I think of quantum uh, theory and quantum physics as one of these grand theoretical things and I never actually thought it has a practical application that's used to benefit my day. So what is quantum, how is my day on an everyday basis benefited by quantum physics? So what we do is we sort of take, um, say, an, an atom, and you sort of work out like how you make that atom emit radiation in a certain way. So, so you, can, you can work out where, using a thing called the Schrodinger equation, from Erwin Schrodinger, the guy with the cat, right? And, and you sort of take that and you say, okay, so if I, if I adjust this atom or if I put that together with this other atom and I'll have this kind of thing and I can put a small amount of energy in and that will stimulate it to then sort of give out lots of other energy. So it's like you, you have a map of the system effectively and you're like, oh, if I take a shortcut there then I can get a lot of stuff out of here. And so that's how you get, for instance, things like lasers, you know, that, that's... You know, so, which are everywhere now, obviously, like supermarket scanners. And that, and that comes directly from understanding quantum physics. Yeah, how does it, like, I, all right, before I get onto the cat, <clears throat> so again, just, I'm going to go back to the, the hose full of lumps because it's a nice metaphor. Right. So that hose is showering me with lumps, yeah. but it's quite like, it's not a very concentrated hose. Like if it was out the back garden, I'd be annoying my neighbours with it. It'd be going everywhere. Yeah. Whereas I want one of these hoses that are like really, you could wash the windows with it. It's like, like that. Is that what a laser That's is? That's what a laser is, yeah. And what so a laser, laser is, is concentrated lumps. Basically, is that the lumps are all linked together. So, so they're... Yeah, how does it do it? Because I can understand how water does it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a phenomenon called coherence. So, so they're, they're sort of locked together basically, because the atoms are controlled in the way that they will emit these things. So, so you get this kind of uh, locking, which means that they don't just all go spraying off at random. And, and like, what is laser light? Uh, it's photons. It's, it's still the same basic thing, lumps of energy, but they're just all much more controlled in the way that they're emitted. But is it the same? It's, it's the exact same as that. Why is, why is it a laser green or red? Oh, so, so that's just to do with the materials that you make the laser from. They're not the same as that. So the light okay. emitting diode is a, is a different kind of technology. Yeah. Uh, and laser is, is a just much more powerful way of locking things together. This is just designed so that it doesn't waste a lot of, light as, a lot of energy as heat. Um, so back to, <clears throat> you mentioned there Schrodinger and you said the guy with the cat. Yeah. Can you tell us what is Schrodinger's cat? Uh, explain the experiment. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not an actual experiment. I should say it's a thought experiment. So no cats were harmed uh, in the making of this experiment. So the idea was that actually, and, and the interesting thing, so, so Schrodinger's cat, the thing everybody knows is it's alive and dead at the same time. It's like, it's a weird thing where it's like, there's this cat and it's alive and dead at the same time. And everyone thinks this is the cool thing about quantum physics. When Schrodinger came up with this, this was his, his, this was his actual proof that there was something wrong with quantum physics and he wanted to get out of it, basically. He felt like this was just going nowhere. Um, there was too many problems to deal with. So what he said was, well, look, um, we have these sort of weird things that happen in quantum physics where I can uh, have two things that happen at once. 
And so I can describe it with my wave equation. And you know, like you throw two, two stones into a pond, right? Yeah. And you get the waves coming, and they meet each other. Yeah. And then actually you get a, a thing called interference from that. So, so they actually become another wave, effectively. And, yeah. and the characteristic of that wave is determined by like, the initial two waves. And, and that's how quantum things are described in quantum theory, as waves. So you can have these two waves that effectively meet and, are, you know, and produce this, this effect together. But they're not waves of like water or physical stuff. They're actually waves of um, probability. So, so, so they're, what? They're, they're, the probability. they're waves of what might happen. They're, they're waves of what might happen, exactly. If you do a measurement, if you actually look at it. So, so it's almost like there's two waves and they coexist together and you can't separate them. And then you do a measurement and you just get one of them. So you only get one or the other. You can't have both in the real world. But in the world of quantum theory and the maths of that, you can have both of them existing simultaneously together. And so when you're talking about describing a quantum thing, like say a lump of uranium, right? Yeah. And it's giving out radiation. And that's a quantum event. It just gives it out at random. Like each atom gives out a bit of radiation at random. So if I take one atom of uranium, I don't know whether it's going to give out that radiation in five minutes or five million years. It's literally you don't know. There's no cause in quantum theory. It just happens spontaneously, randomly. And so how you describe that in quantum theory is you say, oh, it has given out the radiation and it hasn't. You can have both options at once and that's fine, right? So Schrodinger said, okay, well, if you can do that, then surely you can like, then link that to a, detect a radiation detector. And you can say that radiation detector has detected radiation and not detected radiation at the same time because the atoms given out radiation and not. So he said, and, and he literally said, I can write the equation for this. And he did, he wrote the equation down and that's all fine. This phenomenon is called superposition. Right? And then he said, right, so imagine I now link that Geiger counter to a hammer and the hammer's up. But if it falls, it breaks a vial of cyanide, right? And it can write the equation where the hammer is up and down at the same time because the Geiger counter has detected and not detected the radiation. So, so you can write a superposition of the cyanide being smashed and not smashed. And then he said, Haha, what if there's a cat there? And, uh, and the cat, therefore, is actually, and I can write the equation for this as well, the cat is dead and alive. It's, it's poisoned and it's not poisoned. As long as this is all in a sealed box, so nobody's doing the measurements, and so there's no like, observation of what the actual outcome in the real world is, then that gives you a cat that's dead and alive at the same time, because, directly because of quantum theory. And he said, so that's absurd, that's ridiculous, there's something wrong with this theory. I didn't know that. Because so so, so, uh, here's the thing, S someone, definitely, they're, they're, like, someone definitely made the box. <laughs> so, someone definitely did it. So, so, like, without question, we don't know whether it happened or not. There is no way that that experiment has been around for so long for someone not to go... But you kind of know that like, when you look in the box, the cat will be cat alive will be... or dead, right? Uh, what? But, but until you open oh, the yeah, box... Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll be until alive. You, until you open the box, the ah. cat is alive and dead. Right, how? So, because everything is one thing and the other, because that's how quantum theory works. No, no, hold on now. <laughs> but like how could like if I opened the box and, and, and the hammer went down then the cat's definitely dead yeah but then if it didn't happen he's definitely alive but, but what quantum theory effectively says and this is this was Schrodinger's big problem with it is that he said that until somebody actually looks and makes a measurement all those things can be both things at once 
So the problem wow. is we don't know what it means to make a measurement. Is it just when we open? I mean, you know, I would have thought the cat gets some say in whether it feels a bit sick or not. I mean, that might be a conscious. The, cat, the cat's consciousness. Yeah, the cat's consciousness might, should play into it, really. So, but we've never resolved this. You know, we, we literally, you know, this, this sort of comes all the way from trying to work out how a light bulb works. And then you get to cats that are dead and alive at the same time. And we don't know the answer. And it's been 120 years. So the thing is, when you hear shit like that, right, essentially, there is a box and there's a cat in it that may be dead or alive. And we only find it's... Its state of dead or aliveness depends upon whether it is being observed. Yeah. And then you hear that and you go, how, does, how do quantum particles know someone's looking at them? And then people go, does that mean there's God? Yeah, I mean, that's a big leap, isn't it? It is a big leap, um, but religious people do use quantum mechanics. God's, I mean, if God's looking all the time, then the cat's definitely one thing or the other. So it can't be about <gasps> God. It can't be about God, because God's supposed to be omniscient and can see everything. So presumably, if you had God in there, God would know whether the cat's like, alive or dead. So God's actually quite problematic in this situation. Okay. Do quantum, uh, do quantum physicists ever, in an experiment, account for there might be God? Um... Not or really. Or not even God, there might be a creator. Not really. So, so there's a famous quote where Einstein said, um, I don't believe that God plays dice. You might have heard that one, right? A, a Christian's always appropriated to say, Einstein believed in God. You yeah, and he didn't. Yeah. He really didn't. And, yeah. and the, the phrase he actually used in German was the old one. So it was a way, kind of way of saying, you know, this whole universe can't be about just chance. Oh, that was his critique of quantum physics. Yeah, it was. It was. So, so he hated a lot about quantum physics, as did Schrodinger at the end. And, um, and, and Schrodinger, like, you know, had various things that he wanted to sort out and he couldn't sort them out. And he said right at the beginning, if we don't sort this stuff out, then I'll be sorry I ever had anything to do with it. And he actually, he, we didn't, and he was. Mm -hmm. So, um, so he, he and Einstein both sort of buggered off towards the end and just went and worked on something else. You worked with Schrodinger? No, no. Oh, okay. No. Um, what, what is the Higgs boson? <laughs> and since we found it, what has it done for us? Ah, oh, so, I mean, the Higgs boson was basically a particle that we predicted must exist in about the 1960s, so about 1965. And the God particle, which is what got everyone interested. It got called yeah. that, yeah, and all the physicists hated that it was called that, but they quite liked the attention at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's a difficult one, isn't it? So, um, so they, they said... Um, this thing must exist because in order for some of the stuff in particle physics to hold together and for some of the mass that we experience, you know, the kind of resistance to force that we have, we need to have this particle. We need to have this thing called the Higgs field, which sort of fills what all the space. What do you mean the resistance? So your mass yeah. is the thing that, like, keeps you in the chair because gravity is mm -hmm. acting mm -hmm. on it. And if I were to push you, then I would feel like your mass resistance is a resistance, my mass, resistance yeah. to movement, basically. So, um, so we does, get does some the of that. Hig, does the Higgs boson give mass to subatomic particles? Uh, it gives some of the mass. Does that mean it's a really tiny priest? <laughs> I've walked right into that. Yeah. No, I don't, I, I, that was pre-prepared. That wasn't. That joke. It's my joke, but it's about seven years old. Uh, infinitely recyclable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, 
And yeah, so it gives us a little bit of our mass, not all of it. Yeah. But the idea is that this was the last thing that we had to discover. So we discovered all the other particles in this sort of thing, this puzzle that we're putting together. And the last one, we predicted it in 1965, it must exist. It's taken us this long to build an accelerator big enough to find it. And what, what is a particle accelerator? Like, what, what is the CERN? So what they do is they produce particles, subatomic particles, mostly protons, uh, and they accelerate them sort of in a big ring that's like about 27 kilometers across mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and they accelerate them up to nearly the speed of light. So that when they smash together, basically they're, they're almost smashing together at the speed of light, which means they've got energies that are kind of close to where we were at the Big Bang. Oh. And the idea is that if you then like look at what you get out of that collision, all the debris that comes out of it, you can start to see the real sort of fundamental things that make up the universe, because mm -hmm. you're close to that kind of energy. So in order to get the Higgs boson, you basically had to smash things together at almost the speed of light. And then you look at the debris that comes off and the way it's thrown off, and you can say, oh yeah, that, that's the thing that was a Higgs. I mean, you don't actually see the Higgs boson itself. What you see is the stuff that it turned into mm -hmm. afterwards as it all kind of you know, fell apart. So, so you, and then you infer from that, oh yeah, the Higgs boson is there and it's, it, it has this kind of energy. And, 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 and basically what happened in that experiment was we confirmed everything that the theory said. It was all perfect. And, uh, and physicists were really annoyed because it made everything else really dull. It was like there were no questions left to ask. And so now, now they're sort of thinking, I think we're going to need a bigger accelerator. Okay. So, um, so the, I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure what... I mean, there's still stuff going is, is on. Is it true so. that that accelerator discovered, like, elements on the periodic table that only exist for, like, a second? I don't know. Is it okay. true? Okay, you'd probably know, man. Yeah, yeah, um, that's something I read on the internet that obviously isn't true because I'm it, guessing you'd have you'd have probably heard about it. I don't it. know. I'm not, I can't be across everything. <laughs> um, what about when the Large Hadron Collider opened, and some like scientists were like, "This is going to end the world." I don't think any scientists thought that. Okay, who taught us? Uh, there was there was some people in India. Um, there was, so there was a guy who basically, I think it was in America, who said, I've read the health and safety report on this, mm -hmm. and I can't see any mention of the problem of like mini wormholes being, mini black holes being created. Yeah. And they might, if they are created, they might blow up and like become huge black holes and destroy the universe. Yeah. And, um, and all the scientists were like, what? Uh, and then CERN had to go back and do another health and safety report, basically. But the media got a hold of but it. But the media got a hold of it. And of course, as soon as it's reported, people start panicking and saying, when this thing turns on, we're all going to die. Yeah. Um, not many people thought that, I, th I don't think, but enough for the media to write about it. Yeah. And, and I think... But it's a, a beautiful story. It's like, in terms of the media, that's a good media day. It's it, like, it the scientists are going to create something that swallows all known reality. Like, yeah. That's, and it was the start of clickbait as well. It was like 2013. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think I mean, I'm not sure they really check their sources on that very much. Could, you know, like I mean, I, the, the interesting thing is, so you get those little black holes, and the possibility does that actually does happen. Well, it was supposed to, but it didn't. So I mean, it was a possibility that we would create sort of mini black holes, and they never turned up, which is actually really disappointing. But what? what and. Because black holes sound scary. Like, does the, will our sun eventually turn into a, a, a black hole? No, because it's not big enough. It's, it's not massive enough. You have to have a sort of quite a serious amount of mass. So can you tell us 
how, how, what the fuck is a black hole and how does right. it happen and why are they important? So when you get a certain size of star and at the end of its life, it stops um, burning because it's run out of all its fuel. And that's when all of the size of the whole thing has been held up by the fact that it's burning. You know, it's like pushing itself out with all the, all the energy. So um, it, at the end of that, it just collapses. And then it collapses so far on itself that it becomes so dense that basically it just keeps on collapsing because it's pull, pulled under by its own gravity. So all the, so it the still mass has of the star, all the matter it still has, all the but matter it's just is gone there, into a tiny and it's space. it's got this intense gravitational pull on it, so it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it gets to the point where all that mass then is contained in a region of space and time that's so small that it effectively rips a hole in, in space-time itself. So and is that it, is the center of a black hole. So like if you had a car, and a car is really big and heavy, but you melted it to the size of that... It's that kind of thing. Yeah, it's no, but you could no, but you can you do that? Um, it's, it's 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 something that was once large, but now it's tiny. But yet it's so still the same so amount of heavy. That it doesn't ever stop shrinking because it pulls on itself so hard because of gravity. So it doesn't ever stop shrinking and it just breaks space. And but wasn't Einstein the fellow who said that space and time are the same thing? Yeah. So now you've got this star. That's after ripping into time. Yeah. So what the fuck's that about? Well, <laughs> so it rips a hole in... So you have to think of the universe as being... like So three dimensions of space is quite easy. We know that. Yeah. And then you add one of time as well. And normally, you know... Is, is time the fourth dimension? Yes. Okay. So time is the fourth dimension. And we just move... We can move anywhere we like in the three dimensions of space, up and down. We can sort of move ourselves around as time... I mean, time has basically got us, and we're just moving forward in time, and there's nothing we can do about it. And um, the idea is that actually, Einstein said, well, you know, it's exactly the same as space. It's not clear why it behaves so differently for us, but it is the same. And when you cross the event horizon of a black hole, in fact, which is the, you know, the, the sphere beyond which you can't go back because you're always going to be pulled in, even light can't escape. Uh, once you cross that point, then you're actually heading uh, into your own future. So time becomes space on the inside of a black hole. And one dimension of space becomes time. And I mean, it's impossible to get your head around yeah. what that actually means, but it's there, in the, it's there in the equations. And so you end up falling into your own future. And it's, <laughs> and it's sort of in, inescapable. Oh my God, I, I, I just hear that as some fucking, some owl lad. Did you hear about him last week? He fell into his own future. <laughs> um, fuck. <sighs> I'm trying to think of the right question. Hold on. Um, <laughs> so, like, uh, so this is the stuff that I love about this territory of science is, and I said it to you backstage, a special fuzzy feeling it gives my brain when yeah. I'm now confronted with something way beyond what my mind can understand, but also at the same time knowing that it's true. Do you know what I mean? And, like... I mean, true is a difficult thing, right? Because knowing that it's true is... So you can read stuff and you can read the maths and you can say, this is what I think the maths is saying. But what actually is the case? We used to but, think that... But like, haven't, they got, haven't they gotten clocks? Haven't they gotten a clock and put it on an airplane? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, tell so, us that that's the... When I heard that, I went, fuck, this is real. Yeah, T so, Tell me about that. So, um, so this was in the early 1970s, I think. So this was basically the way to prove that Einstein's special rel relativity was right. And Einstein's special relativity says that when you move fast relative to something else, 
then your time changes. Like your, your, the passage of time is different for you than it is for that thing that's just mm -hmm. stayed still. So uh, they got two atomic clocks, and they basically sat one in a laboratory and put the other one on an airplane. And they actually bought it a ticket. And, they, and when they, <laughs> they had to buy a ticket, but they got a reduced rate because it wasn't going to eat anything. Seriously. And, uh, and it said on the ticket, Mr. Clock. It's amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. It's amazing. So, so, and they flew it around the world. So, so basically, it moved on a, on a jet plane you know, fast enough so that its experience of time, and this is because of the, basically the ticking of its atoms. I mean, the clock itself is just about the vibration frequency of the atoms, so the resonant frequency of these atoms. And that gives you a measure of time. And as it flew around the world, and then they came back and stood it next to the other one, and they measured different times. So they, they showed that moving fast relative to something else through space like that's actually messes with time. Yeah. And what it means is that astronauts who go up to the space station, they're actually sort of traveling forward into the future faster than but we are. But does that mean that it, like, a pilot or an air hostess ages differently to the rest of us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of billionths of a second you know, throughout a lifetime, pretty much. So it's not great. It's nothing to write home about. Yeah. It's not big and clever. Is this the other one with um, twin theory then? Yeah, so exactly the same thing. So if you have two twins, and uh, you can only have two twins, really, can't not you? Not in Kerry. <laughs> there was triplets were born down in Kerry. And this fella goes, did you hear about then? They had the three twins. <laughs> but go on. So um, you've got twins, you separate them out. So, so one stays on Earth, and the other one gets in a rocket and flies off to the nearest star, basically. Yeah. And, what, and then you bring them back together. And when you bring them back together, um, one of them has aged, so the one who's traveled has aged much less than the one who, who stayed at, on Earth, because their relative sort of movement through, through space has been different. And, and I mean, you know, obviously we haven't done that because we can't fly off to stars or whatever. But, but you know, the theory stands and the atomic clock thing proves that that would be the case. And what that means is actually that when you're traveling fast through space, your atoms slow down effectively in what they do. So you're, you're, you're actually, all of you is experiencing less time. And, and so you would come back to Earth and you would have had a little bit less time than everyone else. And does mass also, like... <clears throat> If I was to able to spend a year on Jupiter, because on Jupiter it, gravity is more or something, is this? Yeah, it's higher, yeah. Um, would I age differently on Jupiter if I managed to get back to, to Ireland? Yeah, so, so you would be in <laughs> <laughs> Ireland. I'm not sure that's the first place you'd go, is it? No. no. Earth, I mean. <laughs> Ireland. God, go on. Don't worry about Houston. So, so you're, you're in a position where you're in a, basically a stronger gravitational field, and that slows down time. So a strong gravitational field slows down time. And, and, and so, yes, you, you would have less of an experience of time. So that's the, the idea is that like, you can build a time machine, possibly, by putting like, one end of a wormhole tunnel sort of near a, a neutron star, which is incredibly dense, incredibly strong gravitational field. And at that end of that wormhole, basically time goes much slower. So you can kind of work out how to travel through time. If you could get through a wormhole, you'd travel to a different region of time and I, slow it down. So the, here's something I heard, and I don't know is it true or not. So I heard that, like, if you've got a black hole here in this part of the universe and then another black hole there in that part of the universe, that you can just go like this. 
and then and make a shortcut. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. I mean, that that I say that's true. I mean, that's a good example of true being a difficult word, um, because in theory you can it, you make a, a wormhole. So it's not too black hole. What is? Yeah. What's a wormhole? So a wormhole is a rip in space, like you would have at the center of a black hole. Yes. So okay. the uh, the theory might is that you know maybe if you go into a black hole, you actually exit the black hole somewhere else in the universe because it's like a just a shortcut to another place. So, so it has to have. So it has arse, to have an basically. Yeah, yeah. So is is see this I is the thing. I think they use the word throat actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it has an arse. Arse and a throat. Yeah. yeah. The arse end of the wormhole. <laughs> but again, it, this is where it's like how much of that is getting into science fiction. But do scientists seriously look at wormholes and go, maybe this is how we get to another galaxy. Maybe this is how we cheat light years as such. Not. Every day, um, so I mean, you don't wake up in the morning thinking that that's what I'm aiming to do, right? Yeah. So um, we look at the possibility of time travel. Everyone wants to be able to travel through time. Mm -hmm. The only way you can do it is through things like wormholes, right? So you theorize about it, and you sort of say, if I had a wormhole, and, and you know, we don't have a wormhole. We don't know how to make one. And but do they definitely exist? Not necessarily. No, no, it's not proof. So are they only theorized? They're only theorized. Okay. Yeah. So you can you know that if you have enough mass and density, then you can rip a hole in space-time in theory, right? And in theory, you could do that twice and you could create a wormhole, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the trouble is a wormhole, space-time is basically elastic and it wants to snap shut. So you have to keep it open. Mm -hmm. uh, and in order to keep it open, you need this stuff called negative energy. Mm -hmm. And we don't think that exists either. So there's a lot of ifs and buts on the way to time travel, right? So, but in theory, yes, you can do that kind of thing and you can, you know, you can see how it could be done. And then you have to have the problem of like, well, what does time travel actually mean? You know, was Back to the Future right? Do you sort of erase yourself? Like everyone talks about going back and like doing, killing a grandfather as a baby yeah. and stuff, which is a weird thing to do. Bit yeah. odd. I, I'd be wearing flares or something or <laughs> going to discos. I don't think I'd be killing my grandfather. No, because it, it doesn't sound quite so bad when you talk about killing your grandfather, but actually you're talking about killing your grandfather when he was a baby. It is a bit hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, what no. would you do if you got, I'm going to go back and murder a child? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. There's I'm, way better things to do than that. I'm not really down with I'd that. I'd rather have a good day. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it's all theory, uh, and, it, you know, there's very huge practical problems to putting it together. So, so it may be that the laws of physics don't allow us to travel through time, and then we can't do anything about it. Here's a question for you, and it's something, so... <clears throat> If I look up at a star, right, and that star, we'll say, is 360 million light years away. So if I was on that star and I had a telescope, if I was looking at Earth, I'd be looking at a lot of dinosaurs. Like today, if I was on that star, I'd be seeing dinosaurs yeah, yeah. because the light from the dinosaurs took 360 million yeah. years to reach that star. Yeah. So when I look up into the sky, how do I know that the star that I'm looking at isn't already gone and dead? It might well be. I mean, there must be stars that, that we can see now that no because longer Because you're only exist. getting the light. Yeah. Because the light has taken, you know, maybe, you know, as much as hundreds or thousands of millions of years to get to us. So that it might have imploded and gone. But, but when the star is gone, though, does that not, like, change everything around it? Like, does that not, like... What, what I'm trying to say is, is, is it just the light that travels? What about, we'll say, the gravitational 
force of it or the, the absence of it. So they, they die in different ways. So you see like the matter, some of them will turn into things called white dwarfs where they're just really sort of collapsed and they, they're no longer giving out light. You've got different sort of endings for these stars and the matter eventually sort of, you know, just sits there really because it's all held together by gravity so it's not going anywhere and and there's nothing really in its environment you know we're what 93 million miles away from the sun and and so you know if the sun disappeared obviously it would be huge for us but it would take seven minutes but, but it would take seven minutes before yeah. you know we noticed and so i guess with you know, no, th yeah that's the, the universe question. just evolves and, and stuff happens that's the question so let's just say you had a button and the button could make the sun disappear right right but if the sun disappeared what that would do for gravity would fuck everything up. So... Well, you mean it disappeared actually from the universe? Like literally gone. Right. So then that would... It would be like... Um, this is quite a hypothetical... If, if you're jumping... Yes, yeah, it's never going to happen. <laughs> it, like if you're jumping up and down on the bed, yeah. the ripple of... of is gra would it be a gravity ripple? Um, would a would gravitational wave? Yeah. yeah. Would we feel... So if it takes seven minutes for the light to get to us, how long does it take us to notice that the sun would be gone from a gravity point of view? Um, well, gravity, we think, travels at the speed of light. So oh, does it? Yeah, so, so the influence of gravity travels, so it would be the same time. Okay, okay. Um, there's no fun there at okay, all. Okay, no, there's no fun at all. I, I didn't know that gravity traveled at the same speed as light. Yeah. Um, and why would you? I mean, whoever thinks about that? I fucking had a few thinks about that. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to not talk to you backstage <laughs> because I'd waste all the good questions. I mean, it's a good excuse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to get onto. So I have, I have a story in my, my new book, right? And it's about, it's about this fella who gets addicted to wearing tweed. <laughs> but he gets addicted to wearing a specific type of tweed because what, what he gets addicted to is how itchy it is. So he starts to try and seek more and more to get the itchiest tweed available. Right. So he ends up making this tweed out of, out of goat's hair, which is so itchy that when he moves, it gradually rips the fabric of time. <laughs> and then he figures that, like, because he starts walking around and seeing dinosaurs and stuff, you know, and he starts to figure there's something about this abrasive tweed that can rip the fabric of time. Does it have properties that can be applied for real life. So he, he puts it into smartphones and it allows people to edit time the way that we can edit our timelines on like Twitter and Facebook, but it uses the, the multiverse theory. Ah, so yeah. every time you edit, it's like a new version of yourself is created. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us about um, this idea that okay, I'm going to touch this water bottle. But now some other cunt who's also me in another universe didn't touch it. Yeah, I mean, that's effectively... The idea is that there's a near-infinite number of universes, and every quantum event, so like, you know, whether a, an electron goes left or right when it's got a choice, creates a new universe. Or, or one happens in one universe, and the other happens in another universe. And the guy who came up with this is a guy called Hugh Everett III. And there's good reason for it. So, so when you go all the way back to the start of quantum theory, you have to like, bring in extra dimensions of space right, straight away in order to explain you know, how a light bulb works, basically. You need 
extra dimensions of space. How many dimensions? Um, well, one for each quantum thing. So, so literally, there's like one for an electron and then one for the other electron. And, and so you get this near infinite extra number of dimensions if you want to explain how all the particles in the universe operate, right? Wow. So um, whoever kind of took this and ran with it and said, well, maybe that means that actually what's going on is that, that we're just in accessing this infinite array of universes. And, and other people have sort of taken this further and said, you know, that means that like, you know, there are other versions of me in another universe. And actually, Hugh Everett thought there was, so he said he would never die because he, he, he told his wife, he, he said, I will never die. I might die in this universe, but the version of me will always live on because that's how the, the multiverse works. And he said, so when I die, don't worry about it. Just get me cremated and put me out with the rubbish. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I mean, they got divorced quite soon after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty heavy one to but, bring home. But when burn me and put me in the bin. Yeah, and, but that's exactly what his ex-wife. It's our anniversary. I don't what, care. That's what she did, and that's and so he believed in it so strongly that he was kind of thinking, you know, the, there's a version of me that's going to live forever. And there are lots of people around who think that this is actually the kind of the way things are. That there are other versions of us, you know, out there doing different things um, tonight. But, so it's every. Do you mean like, is is there? Okay, so evolution. Does that mean that there's universes out there where there's different animals that evolved? Or, I don't know, yeah, a absolutely. universe full of yeah. humans, but our, our knees are on the backs of our legs? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we'd stay that way for long, would we? I no. Mean, so <laughs> oh, what would bicycles look so like? So easy to take <laughs> Well, nobody in that world would have invented the bicycle, would they? No. Be like an ostrich on a bicycle. <laughs> um, but that's one of those... It's... it's so scientists take that seriously. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I know quite a few people who work like at the frontiers of quantum physics who think this is a very viable way of thinking about the world. And it's not something, is it something they're trying to prove or just, is it kind of, if I think about reality this way, it means that I can work in a certain direction. So what they do is, I mean, they don't, it doesn't really affect daily life. It doesn't affect the way you do your research. Um, it just means you can explore it philosophically and it's kind of fun and interesting. And they, it's not really something you can prove. So this, this whole thing comes down to the problem of interpreting what it means that that cat is dead and alive at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the idea is that, you know, there's one universe where the cat's alive and the other universe where the cat's dead and it sort of solves it quite neatly in a way. Um, and the, the basics of it are that you can kind of think like this and work like this and it allows you to do the maths and it allows you to kind of play around with ideas, but it doesn't affect like what quantum stuff does. So, so you, you don't get to sort of say, oh, if, it, if, if, if this is true, this experiment will come out differently because it just doesn't, it doesn't matter because it come out differently in another universe basically and you'll never get to see it. So the only way you can prove that this works is, is in an experiment called quantum immortality where you rig up a gun that basically fires its trigger uh, according to some quantum event like you know whether an electron goes left or right in a, in a circuit or something like that which happens at random and the idea is if it goes left that it pulls the trigger and, and shoots you but there will always be a universe where it went right and that's the universe that you'll stay conscious in so you'll constantly know and and if it goes the other way it gives you a beep so you know you survived so your consciousness is immortal so your consciousness in this idea is immortal and just is t you're just hopping through through parts of the wow. multiverse the trouble is that proves to you that you're alive in that you know you've done this like hundreds and thousands of times and you've never died so it's like oh that's pretty good but nobody else in the other universes will believe you because all they can see is an idiot with a gun taped to his head <laughs> fucking hell <laughs> Um, 
sometimes with stuff like this, what allows me to get my head around it and to feel comfortable with it is it's video games. Right. So when I was trying to figure out, like, the multiverse, there are certain video games whereby choices you make in that game define the rest of the game. So you'll have characters in that game and they can do one of six things. And depending on what you choose there, that's how the game goes. And I'll never know what the game would be like if I make these choices. And that allows me then to feel comfortable with, okay, that's a bit like the multiverse. Yeah. And it's manageable. But then the other thing is, like, trying to understand that, like, you know, time is something that can be bent and warped, which fucks up my head because time for me is just, it's what's happening. It's all around us. It's now... It was. See, it wasn't. There you go. But uh, when I play a video game like um, Grand Theft Auto, which is very detailed, and it has a little city and loads of characters, and and the characters have, like, even characters that you're not playing directly, they have little lives and they carry on. Yeah. And And a day in Grand Theft Auto is an hour in my time. And when I'm there playing it, it's like, yeah, this makes sense, but my character in Grand Theft Auto... That's reality to them. But I'm outside in a fucking living room sitting in my jocks on the television and I have a whole different reality. And then that, I, I was like, fuck, that has a name. That's called simulation theory, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So tell us about simulation theory. So I mean, what simulation theory says is there's somebody sitting in their jocks in the living room controlling you, effectively. Yes. And is that person God? <laughs> well, no, they don't have to be God because there's probably somebody doing the same to them. So the wow. idea of simulation theory is that it just goes all the way. And eventually you sort of think there must be some base civilization that made the first yeah. simulation. And then the people in that simulation became conscious or were conscious and, and like gaming and they made their own one. And then they made their own one. So it goes all the way down. It doesn't really solve the problem, but we're so probably almost statistically like the- we're somewhere in the middle probably. So almost then there, it's like the meaning of life is to create your own sentient universe. And then that sentient universe creates its sentient universe. Yeah. But the, the problem is that, I mean, we've sort of had this in philosophy. This has come out in the last sort of decade or so, well before The Matrix, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and the, the philosophers who are looking at it sort of saying, so if this is true, what should we do? So, so their big problem is like, if we've worked this out, does that mean that actually they're just going to delete us? It's like, is it, is it better that we just pretend we don't know that we've worked this out? Or, or should we make ourselves really interesting so that we, you know, they, they delete everyone else but not us because we're great? And that we'll go to level two or something like that. So, I mean, that, that's, that maybe is the meaning of life, is, is be interesting so that you don't get deleted from the simulation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Um... Um, like, I have to stop getting, do you know, I have to stop getting a, such an interesting guest because I can't fucking continue my line of questions. <laughs> That's like getting kicked in the head by a donkey. Um, hold on, I'll just consult the sheet because that's after wiping my head. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Michael. Um, Tom Dunn, who's a radio DJ from, from Ireland, asks, what was there before the Big Bang? 
Uh, well, I mean, that's, in some ways, I can cheat that question because time came into existence with the, with the Big Bang. Because we, as we said, there's like space and time are the same thing, effectively. They're just the fabric of the universe. There was no time before, the, there was no such thing as before, once you, before you had time. So, so I don't know, is, is, look, what's north of the North Pole? I, 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 ah, I see where you're going with that. So I okay. can't answer the question, really. But, you know, but are you suggesting there that time is kind of cyclical or loopy? Or, or well, there's some people who think that time is, is, the universe is cyclical and just sort of, you know, it blew up in a big bang, will collapse in a big crunch, and then we'll just like do this endlessly again. But I mean, you know, we're in the realms of where you can't really do experiments now. So you're just thinking about like what might be and what might not be. Yeah. And why, you know, why should something exist rather than nothing is like the biggest question that nobody can really answer. And you could say, well, it's because, you know, there's quantum laws that say you can't have exactly nothing. So the uncertainty principle says you can't have exactly nothing. Therefore, uh, there has to be something, right? But that it implies that the quantum laws were existing sort of in order for that to happen. And maybe the quantum laws are, are sort of a product of our universe rather than the cause of it. Is the middle of a black hole nothing? We don't know. So we don't know. I and mean, literally, we don't have any physics that describes what happens inside a black hole. So relativity breaks down as soon as you break space-time apart. It doesn't work. And we don't have a theory for quantum, a quantum version of gravity, which is what we're tr sort of trying to develop. You might have heard of string theory. This is an attempt to... That's what I was going to ask you to yeah, talk about, yeah. Yeah, so this is an attempt to try and marry together quantum stuff and relativity stuff. So, and it's like quantum theory is built of Lego and, and relativity is built of Meccano, and you try and put them mm -hmm. together, and you just can't. So you have to start again and sort of try and do Make something. Make them out of elastic bands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the string theory is these little loops of energy uh, that are fundamental, and they vibrate in one way, and they create a photon. They vibrate in another way; it's an electron, and you know, that's how you build up. And then you you sort of build up forces and matter through these lumps of energy, that are, uh, strings of energy that are vibrating, and that's the basic theory. And you, I mean, it's all and when mass. you say string, uh, is the model of this string like is is it a circle or is it just a string just doing its own thing? Um, it's it's usually a loop, so it's okay. a, it is a loop of of energy. What and that do means, do they I'm intertwine not really sure. with each other then, like? So the idea is they interact with each other, in it, but it's all mathematical. So, so you know, it's all geometry and, and, and numbers, effectively. So it's sort of slightly cheating. And in order to make it work, you have to, have, you have to add in, sort of, I think, seven extra dimensions of space, yeah. um, which is inconvenient, maybe. But, and then you sort of say, well, where are they? And they say, well, they're rolled up really small, so you can't see mm -hmm. them. Um, and they call that compactification, because that sounds clever. But actually, you know, it's sort of a way of making the whole thing work. And it's sort of... And is it taken seriously? Is oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's, it's the best we've got. I mean, it's String the, theory is the best? The best we've got in terms of sort of quantum gravity theories uh, that, you know, hopefully will ex eventually explain what happens inside a black hole and how maybe even how the universe began. And the idea is that you just have to sort of put all the maths together and then you get a description of the universe. And, and you'll get one universe that has these properties, another universe that has different properties, and you just sort of take your pick which one's sort of closest to the one we, we know. So it produces something like 10 to the 24 universes, um, which is a lot, obviously. That's 10 <laughs> followed by 24 zeros. It's a lot of universes. But, you know, maybe there are all those universes. Um... <laughs> the, <laughs> Uh, what, what is quantum biology? 
Well, quantum biology is, is basically the study of quantum effects that might have had an effect in evolution. So, so the idea is that you, um, you look for ways in which quantum theory might have influenced certain things in biology. So there's, one of the examples is like bird navigation. Like how do, how do birds like navigate? How do they actually see and sense the magnetic field yeah. of the Earth? And uh, there's a theory that actually sort of does have some evidence behind it that says that um, the birds have a kind of a sense that comes from quantum entanglement in the, inside the retina of their right eye, I think it is. And these experiments are done on a bird called the European robin. And they, they basically disorient them really badly and cover one eye. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then and sort of watch how they respond to magnetic fields. But there's a, there's a chemical inside the retina of their eye, which when you do the quantum sort of maths on it, you can see that actually under certain uh, injections of energy, it would become entangled. And then maybe you sort of get a sense of like, there's something not quite right, or I've got a face this way or that way. They don't and, really and know Why do you mean quantum entanglement? Is so, that like uh, the yeah. slit experiment? So, so quantum entanglement is this weird property that only exists in quantum physics where two things, so like say two photons, I, I, I can basically bang them together or whatever, make them interact, and now when I describe them, they're not separate things, they're, they're one thing. Even though I can separate them physically in space away from each other, but if I do something to one over here, it affects the outcome of what I do to so, so uh, that's over when here. It, they can communicate across distances and yeah. no one knows why. So they can't communicate because communicate is transfer of information and you can't transfer information. But I can, I can basically influence the outcome of an experiment on this one by doing something to this one. Would it be like if I cut this table in half and we put one side over there and one side over there and if I hit it with a hammer at that side, it smashes over there? Kind of, yeah, yeah. That's a great example, yeah. It's just, it's weird. I mean, so Einstein said it was spooky action at distance. Didn't, yeah, spooky. Didn't believe it could be true, and he was wrong. It is true. So, what happens inside the bird's eye that's... So we think that what happens is some kind of energy thing happens. So, so, so the, you get in two entangled atoms, basically, inside the retina of the, of the bird, and it sort of senses the energy field in a new way. So in the same way that we, you know, I see light, so I'm sensing that energy field effectively. But there's response to magnetic fields, and um, and it gives them you know, maybe like a heads-up display kind of you know, this way's north kind of thing, or a sense of a sense of north. And this is how they they manage to navigate. And and it, interestingly, it takes the wavelength of light that sort of would cause that entanglement is exactly what you get at sunset. So when you see all these birds sort of, you know, on the wires at sunset. Oh, my fucking God. It, it's, it's uncanny that that should, that should be the case. But it is, it's, so it's so not conclusively those, proved, but it's, it's quite strong. Because we all, like, if you grow up in a city, especially at the summer, the swallows that are ready to go down to Africa, yeah. we know them on the pylons at nighttime. Yeah, and, and yeah it's, just it's, as, as the wavelength of light gets to that, that exact wavelength that oh causes entanglement. Oh, my fucking God. It's cool, isn't it? Is there ever at any point of your work when you find shit out like that that makes you uh, not an atheist or makes you wonder if there was a creator? No, not really. Stop giggling, you fucking... <laughs> I'm not into I, God either. I, I, I mean... It's just a question for a fucking scientist, you pricks. <laughs> fucking Richard Dawkins in the background giggling. It, it doesn't do that. It, I, I think it hits the same spot in some ways. It's like... It creates wonder, it creates awe. You know, the quantum entanglement, for instance, 
It just freaks me out, I have to say. Mm -hmm. It freaks me out because, you know, I, I talked to the guy who's done the most experiments on this, who's sort of you know, laid it all out and made it clear that it's real. And I say, so how does it work? What's going on? And he says, well, actually, there's, there's no story I can tell you within space and time that explains this. He said, so this stuff, which is now routine, like we use but entanglement Why all the time. is it not communication? That, that's because what I can't get my head around. How is that not communication? So, so what you get is you, you can influence the outcome of a statistical process. So it, it all relies on probabilities. So you can't ever say what the outcome of that individual action is going to be, which means you can't encode information. You can't send information using it. All you can do is, like, when you do it multiple times, you can see that you've effectively biased the coin, you know, and, and you, you, you've no longer got 50-50. It's sort of 80-20 oh. or something like that. But you can't ever, on one single occasion, like, send, like, say, you know, if I do this, you go left. You know, that, that means go, you know. It's, it's not a communication in, in, the, in that way. Is entanglement the technology that's now being used uh, for quantum computing? Yes, uh, and quantum cryptography. So, so the idea is that you can, you can. This is so like normal now, everyday technology that you can literally buy off-the-shelf machines that that use quantum entanglement, even though you know they work outside of our universe. Effectively, and, and like what? What can I buy? You can buy, you can buy a quantum cryptography uh, kit, which basically will allow you to encode or, or send messages uh, where you you will know if there's been an eavesdropper. I mean, that's that's basically what quantum cryptography Fucking is. Fucking hell! Why isn't that on the front page of the news? Um, I don't think there's many buyers. But I mean, it's like that's that that's 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 almost magic. Yeah, it's kind of indistinguishable from magic in a way. Because well, it's like nothing else can explain it. No, it literally, if you ask for an explanation, they say, well, something clearly happens outside of space and time. And like, like, fine, great. How? It doesn't say that in the manual, by the but way. But isn't it, it's, for me, it's like, we're fucking with a technology, and we know it, it's working for us, but then when you ask what's going on, they're like, I don't know. But it's the same with, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you just don't ask. So, it's, so it's like, everyone's um, building quantum computers, right? Google, yeah. IBM, Intel, everyone's building quantum computers. Fundamentally, they work by the Schrodinger's cat principle. Yeah, well, what's a quantum computer and why are they important? So, <laughs> those are two big questions. So, so a quantum computer uses the laws, these strange laws, effectively, to, to be able to manipulate information in a way that you just can't in any other, in any other technology. So, and what it enables you to do is do things that are mathematically really, really difficult um, in, with any normal computer. So, so the classic example is that you look for the factors of a large number, which is the basis of all security, like you know, inter national intelligence, uh, internet shopping, you know, everything is based on the fact that you can't find the two numbers that multiply together to give this third big number. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I say 21, you can say the factors of that are 7 and 3 and 21 and 1. That's great. But if I give you like a 50-digit number and say what are the two prime numbers that multiply together to give that, you know, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And, and for normal computers, it takes a hell of a lot of effort. So that's why it's hard to break these codes. Quantum computers can do it effortlessly because it basically uses... Um, these kind of weird quantum properties to kind of you know sift out all the wrong answers and give you the right answer, and and that obviously worries governments enormously. And but where where are we with with quantum computing? Right, like are we like do you know in the 1950s there'd be a computer that's about as powerful as a calculator now yeah. under the size of this room. Yeah. Are we there now with quantum? We're computing? not even there, I would say. So so we're probably. Um, like what does a quantum computer look like? 
<laughs> it looks like a, it depends. There's lots of different technologies. So, so there's uh, the technology that Google's using is is uh, superconducting uh, quantum information. So, it, basically, loops of superconductors, and the way they're arranged, uh, the the current in the superconducting loop goes round clockwise and anticlockwise at the same time, right? So, so it sort of basically can do two things at once, effectively. Um, another technology is use a string of ions, so atoms with like the outer electron removed, and you can just basically use the energy levels as like that's a one, that's a zero for binary code, and then you know you can put them into this superposition state where it's both at once. So, so, so that's quite, so like regular computing is binary, everything is one and zero, but quantum computing is where it can be one and zero at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So, and what so happens you, if I stick my head into it and look? <laughs> you don't. So you ruin the calculation. So the whole problem. The whole problem with Fucking quantum computing hell. and why it's so hard is because everything in the universe is effectively sticking its head in and, and disturbing it. So any vibrations, any heat, like disturbances, electromagnetic fields or whatever, they're all causing these things to fall apart and then you have to start again. So how do you create the environment inside in the computer whereby it's doing its thing and it doesn't know anyone's looking at it or anything is looking at it? So you... Uh, you, you you basically cool it down as far as you can. So you cool it to as near absolute zero, the lowest temperature you can get as possible. So you've got no thermal vibrations. You do it all in a, in a room where all the electromagnetic fields are screened out. So, so you've got no interactions with any kind of stray, stray fields. Have you ever been in one of those rooms? Yeah, I did my PhD in one of those rooms. Does it feel weird? Um, it's just claustrophobic. Okay. It's really claustrophobic. So, so I did my PhD on the superconducting loops thing many years ago. Fuck off! No, yeah, I did, and it was literally <laughs> the uh, same superconducting loops that we're talking about now in quantum. Exactly, and it got to the end of my play. PhD, and I thought this is going fucking nowhere. I'm getting out, and then, uh, <laughs> and along comes Google, Intel, pour billions into the whole thing. Well done, me. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get to benefit from, did, did they come in, you got out before they oh, came in? I was out well before that. Ah, oh, Jesus. This is going nowhere, it's boring. Do um, you regret that deeply? Not really, no. I didn't like the room, I, it was, I, it's claustrophobic. <laughs> it's fine, you know, I'm, I, I've done other things with my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> are quantum computers commercially available or at the moment is it... Is it no, um, th at the moment you can access them, so you can, you can go online if you've got the right credentials and access like Google's quantum computers, their rudimentary stuff and IBM's as well, and you can do little calculations on them and play with them and see what you can do. Um, but it's really hard, it's, it's like you have to start again, you know how like in the 1950s and 60s we had to learn machine code, like mm -hmm. to talk to a computer was really, really hard to mm -hmm. do. And we're sort of at that stage now where people are having to learn how to address these things in a way that makes sense and, and can do something useful. So we're, you know, the, the big sort of growth industry is going to be in programmers for quantum computers, effectively. Um, one question I got asked was, what technology, right, do you... What technology that's emerging excites you most that you think is really going to change things for the better? Um, a 32 county republic, someone said. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know how to... Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest in quantum computing yet. I think it's a bit early. I think there are... It's, 
I mean, the money's going to come from, from finding the, the next, you know, Alexa or, or something like that, you know, that kind of signal, pro you know, ways to interfere in people's lives, basically, that makes them think it's worth it, but it actually isn't, but they'll pay mm -hmm. for it anyway. Um, what, what, so if we were to, when quantum computing improves, like, what can a quantum, how could a quantum computer improve the world? Ah, so, um, one of the, Boring answers to that is is that it enables you to search really fast through like lists of chemicals say so mm -hmm. you can do new chemistry You can sort of find the properties of chemicals So the pharmaceutical industry is really interested in this for drug development, right? So, so this will be a real fast track for for doing the kind of chemistry that leads to you know Sort of breakthrough drugs so that that's one thing and because uh, because it, it can process just way more data than we can process it Yeah, the yeah, and it can search so how do you feel about like because currently the big thing with pharmaceuticals is uh, getting DNA data and running through DNA data. So what would, if we have everyone's DNA on the planet, which is what they want, yeah. and mix that with a quantum computer? So it will search through unstructured information really quickly, or, or much more quickly than you can do with any other method. The thing about DNA data is that, is that you, can't, you, know, you can't really pin down what's useful about this DNA data and this genetic data and, and that. You know, so the idea that you can just take people's you know, uh, genome and say, oh, you need this, this, and this. And it's just not like that. It doesn't work like that. And that's the kind of the big lie that we've been sold, effectively. How do you feel about, um, we'll say, companies like 23andMe and History.com who are basically selling our DNA to pharmaceutical companies, our DNA data, like ethically, is that something that scares you? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do it at all. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it because this stuff is going to reach insurance companies, for instance. And, yeah, what's and the fear all of a there? sudden, you're, you're going to get a phone call saying, mm, we've had to adjust your premium because we've been sent this information. And the information might itself be actually you know, not useful at all, but they've interpreted it in a way where they say, well, you know, he seems more of a risk than he used to. So we're going to up mm -hmm. his premiums. Or, you know, if you live in the U.S., that might mean the difference between life and death. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so I'm not, I'm not a fan of it. I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's uh, useful. I think we're going to find ourselves in a situation where people are going to know about our DNA data. And, and we're already seeing people are discovering, like, relatives they didn't know they had. Yeah. And, you know, which could be good. It could be bad. I, yeah, because I don't think people... What we're talking about, I did a podcast on it before, the companies, all these DNA companies where you spit into an envelope and then it comes back and it tells you what your ethnicity is or whatever. They're selling your DNA to like Glacko, Smithco, Klein, they did a deal for 300 million. And I, I, I don't think people, people don't care. Well, no, they don't understand why that, it's like, why should I give a fuck about my DNA or, or who has it? But they don't, I mean, in, in the same way, they don't understand that like, you know, Alexa is a tool for gathering information about you. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, it's like, it's fun to have in the kitchen, or so you think. And then, and then you realize that you, you can put music on for yourself, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And the speaker's shit. So, you know, it's like, and they're mine's giving, back in its box. They're anyway. giving Alexa away for free now, practically, yeah, too. Yeah, of course they are. Because um, <laughs> I, I was approached by a company, a Canadian company, and they wanted to pay me a pretty decent amount of money per podcast in order to have access to the data of my voice. So they wanted to get my voice, put it into a machine, and right. then have all that data, and they were willing to pay me per podcast. What were they going to do with that? But I said to them, I said, look, you're paying me money for the data of my voice. What, what do you want with it? And they're like, well, we just want to sell it to whoever wants to buy it. 
And then I'm thinking, so you mean you can fucking release my audiobook that a robot said, and you can, yeah. or they could sell it to police agencies who are trying to catch criminals who have my accent. You know, it's just, it, it, just it, it didn't feel good. It's just like, no, no. why do you want to give me a lot of money for my voice? There's something they're not telling you, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. And they seemed really nice, but it's, again, it's... Could they not just have recorded it anyway and just, you know... Well, they can't, because it? then it's... it's I, I'm guessing what it was was uh, GDPR. Right, okay. So my voice data, I must have... Cons I was signing away consent to, can we put your voice through a computer? Yeah. But so I have an app on my phone already... I stopped using it because it scared me. It's called Liarbird. And what it does is you, you train it, you speak into it every single day, and then after about a week of Liarbird listening to you, you can type out sentences, and it's like having Siri, but it's your own yeah, accent. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, yeah. I just didn't like it because it's like, what's on the other end of that? Yeah, because none of us data? really... I mean, it's interesting because one of the few things that Stephen Hawking was never willing to sell was his voice. So he... You know, was that his... So the, 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 the software that, that made his <laughs> voice. Right. The, I mean, the software, was it his unique? Uh, it was unique to him for a long time. And, and people like sat-nav companies wanted to have it so that so you could have Stephen Hawking directing you sort of, you know, around the streets of Bristol or whatever. And how did that happen? When Stephen Hawking went, was he one of the first people to access the technology? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that was his voice. So it wasn't his voice that you I hit, know, but, but it's it uniquely was his, his. It was it's his. It's uniquely his, it yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And he wouldn't... Why, why, he, just, he was precious over his data. Yeah, I think, I think there's a similar sort of sense of this is me and this is my person and there's, there's a line. You yeah, know, yeah, there's yeah. There's a line that you, and you shouldn't sell your person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking hell. Um... Someone, I don't know why someone asked this. Do you know what? I, so I put the question up saying that you're a quantum physicist and you're also interested in democratizing science. And I think someone looked past the whole quantum physics part and just said, why do we hiccup? <laughs> <laughs> and I, do you know what? And I said back to him, I'm going to ask the quantum physicist why we hiccup. It's a muscle spasm, isn't it? Great. Now, moving that on. Man, that man is happy now. Um, I don't know. I'm a physicist. What, what do you think of... Um, it's kind of a crackpot theory, but biocentrism, which is the idea that um, to look at the universe, you don't look at it through physics, you look at it through biology, and that it, it's kind of... It's a fellow called Dr. Robert Lanza. He says that reality isn't something that is there, but rather it's created by consciousness. Right. I mean, is that mad? It's he, he says if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, the tree, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen or it doesn't make a noise? Well, it's not. It's, it's, it, needs someone, it needs someone to be listening to it. Right. So if you don't hear the tree, then that didn't happen. That like, I don't know, if you're in your living room and next door is the kitchen, then if you're not in the kitchen looking at the fridge, all it is is like, quantum possibilities of fridgeness and you need to walk yeah. into the <laughs> so I because mean, consciousness and he means literally physically if you're not in that kitchen nothing there buddy so it's been a long this has been a, actually a long debate in in quantum physics was like you know when you look in the box at the cat yeah right, is is it that you have to look at the 
what happens if you close your eyes, and you, but you just open the box? Is that still changing the state of the cat or not? And there was or a, what if you, well, yeah, what if you smell the cat? What if the cat got so <laughs> frightened and it was a tom cat and it yeah. pissed, and your eyes are closed? So you, all you know then is it pissed itself possibly before it died. So, um, <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you've left it a few months and you can smell decay, then... Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, this is all about, you know, is there, need, is there a need for consciousness in the observer? And lots of physicists for a long time thought there must be a need for consciousness to have an observation. And, and what is, is consciousness when a, a, a sentient being is, is aware of, I'm alive... Well, yeah, so that's the sort of root definition of consciousness. We, I mean, nobody will ever properly define consciousness. Uh, and there are lots of people now who are saying, well, there are degrees of consciousness and we're highly conscious and other animals are maybe less conscious and a rock is probably not very conscious. And, and you can sort of take it through to, you know, this electrical circuit has a kind of network of things that feed back and you, know, you can kind of say it, it will have a degree of consciousness. So you can define it in lots of different ways. My problem with like nothing happens in the universe until there's a, a sentient being is that like, you know, we know that the universe has a history. It, it existed before we existed, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what was doing the observing sort of way back when. Oh, good point. So, you know, it seems to me that you could say, you know, the universe was conscious of itself or something well, brought itself into being, say, but that yeah, becomes meaningless, okay, really. Okay, that's, yeah. Because dinosaurs were conscious. Yeah, to a degree, yeah, definitely. But then those little lads billions and billions of years ago in the fucking ocean. Yeah, but so <laughs> they, they would have like a degree of consciousness but not be very conscious. Is, uh, like even the most basic insect... It, does that have consciousness simply because it can feel pain and run away and stuff? Or what would, about like so bacteria? I would, say, I, I would say bacteria, no. Okay. Um, and viruses, no. I would say that you could you could attribute consciousness to anything that can feel pain because to feel pain is to feel something, and we sort of think of consciousness as being feeling. Mm -hmm. But you can actually build robots that look exactly and react exactly as if they feel pain. So there's a guy called Penti Haikonen who works at the University in Finland. And he builds these robots and he pokes them. You can look on YouTube. He's got loads of videos on YouTube. He builds these robots and he, he trains them to basically react to stimulus. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, he, he teaches them to be afraid of the color yellow or something. Mm -hmm. And then he shows them something yellow and they back off. And it's, it's weird. When you watch it, you think that looks like it's conscious. So the big question is, just because something looks like it's conscious... Is it conscious? Oh, fuck yeah. Because you don't know, and I don't know you're conscious. Yeah, I don't yeah, know any yeah, of them yeah. conscious. All I know is that I'm conscious, and yeah. you could all be like zombies mm -hmm. and just really you know, cleverly put together. In uh, the simulation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I'm it, not. That's what you, you would say that, <laughs> though, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so consciousness is a really, really difficult thing, and we don't yeah, know what's yeah. conscious and what's not. You know, and it comes into you know, questions of ethics about you know, yeah. what animals you're willing to eat and what mm -hmm. you're not willing to eat. And there's a lot of you know, things about, you know, well, if, if something feels pain and feels fear, then should you really be inflicting that on it? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because what, what, do you ever look into plants now and the way they have a, an internet made out oh. of mushrooms? Oh, yeah, I know, I know. I mean, it's bad news for vegans. It, it is, isn't it? Because plants, I mean, plants, they scream in pain when they're cut. Yeah. Um, and so you have to decide that that's not a thing. 
right? So, so you, can, you can record, I think it's the ultrasonic signals of a plant, sort of, you, know, you cut it with a knife and, and, and you can hear this, or, you, know, you can record the ultrasound. And it's effectively a scream which is a response to uh, a predator or something like that. But is that scream, does it not go through the mushroom internet to warn so other plants? So if it's plants? still in the ground, yeah, so if it's That's, still in the ground... This is real. This is real. This is absolutely, and, and there are plants that, that if they start getting eaten by an antelope, they send out a signal to all the other plants in, of the same species in the region to say, up your levels of, like, of bitterness, so caffeine-like mm -hmm. molecules in their leaves, so that you don't get eaten as well, so that they take one bite and back off, because it's so horrible. So they are actually communicating with each other, um, warning each other about you know, what, what's around in the environment that's but a predator. They are using an internet of mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, so, so the mycelium sort of network under, underground in forests, and they prefer their own species, so, that, so they warn their own species, but, but you know, screw the rest. But they won't warn a, yeah, a different yeah, plant. Yeah, yeah. Here's something that, okay, so let's just say the deer comes along and eats the plant, yeah. so then that plant warns the other plants to up their, their bitterness, right? Yeah, yeah. Something like coffee is bitter. We yeah. enjoy the bitter taste of coffee. Yeah. Can we, like bully certain coffee plants and then change the flavour of the rest of the field? Like, is someone looking? If, it, if nature does it... I honestly why don't know if anyone's looking into bullying coffee plants. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably easier ways to do it. I mean, maybe you just breed them differently and breed them to be more bitter. Or... But... Yeah, I mean, it's an option, I suppose. <laughs> I it's, thought it's, I think quite... it's a great thing to say to it's... a guard. The next, time, the next time you're caught fucking vandalising coffee plants, well, that doesn't happen very often, in fairness, does it? <laughs> I don't know, robbing apples from a tree. That's what I'm going to fucking say. The next time I jump over a wall and decide I want to steal some fucking apples, I'm going to say, well, what I'm actually doing is I'm trying to increase the vigour of the orchard because <laughs> by abusing this one tree, it's going to warn the rest. So fuck you. This isn't a crime. that was the podcast interview right there um, there was some audience questions after that but I it would have been too long alright I'll talk to you next week you gentle bastards <laughs>